Everyone, it is time again for Tavern Voices. My name is Kevin King, and joined with me, as always, is Tyler Crawley. Uh, how's it going, buddy? Pretty good. Pretty good. Good. Uh, well, I'm hoping we're going to finish this podcast before we get hit by another major storm and we end up, you know, not being able to finish it. So, but if that doesn't happen, or if it does happen, I'm still pretty good. So, good to go. Yeah, we've had we've had plenty of of storms and rain in the middle of the state the last uh, the last couple of days. So, I feel your pain. I, I thought last night. I. It's like you know when you're sleeping. And you get woken up. I got when it wasn't like lightning. I mean, it wasn't thunder or anything. It was just like crazy wind and rain hitting the window so hard it woke me up. And I'm a pretty heavy sleeper, so um, that it, it surprised me. But you like wake up and you're like still like sleep, but you're awake, and so you start having these like irrational fears. Like, what if the windows like break? And and it was like it was a bad night because I was just I was like all these irrational crazy thoughts. Um, and so hopefully we're good to go tonight. So. Do you need to talk about it? We're we're all here to listen. (laughs) It was just crazy. It was a crazy. It's just, you know, I'm not used to that kind of crazy weather, but it's, I I should, you know, I live down here in Southeast North Carolina. That's what we get. But for some reason, it kind of caught me off guard last night. So I'm good to go. I'm, I'm now mentally prepared for future storms. We're good to go. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you feel better. And, um, you know, because because you, you've got to start things off on the right foot. If you didn't get a good night's sleep, I know you get up basically in the middle of the night to do your show. So <laughs> just want to make sure you're doing okay. Just a, just a quick check in. I'm good. I'm good mentally. I am. I am. I am good to go. And speaking of mentally, that's where we're going to start today, because President Trump this morning, I think maybe after I got off the air, or I think I think it might have been on the air, um, used his Twitter account. To attack the Washington Post and Amazon. I know everyone's shocked by that. Uh, but he, this is he, he broke it up into two tweets. And he said, the Amazon Washington Post has gone crazy against me ever since they lost the internet tax case in the U.S. Supreme Court two months ago. Next up is the U.S. Post Office, which they use at a fraction of real cost as their delivery boy for a big percentage of their packages. In my opinion, the Washington Post is nothing more than an expensive, and then in parentheses, the paper loses a fortune, lobbyist for Amazon. Is it used as protection against antitrust claims, which many feel should be brought? Uh, you know, obviously what's interesting about this story is that Trump thinks that the Supreme court ruling, um, affected Amazon because there was a Supreme court ruling that said that internet companies are going to have to pay sales tax from now on. Uh, Amazon already does that, but Trump thinks Amazon doesn't pay sales tax. Donald Trump also thinks manufacturing is the key to a strong economy. And he thinks trade deficits matter. Kevin, is it a good or a bad thing that the president thinks we're still living in 1994? Hey, man, I think it's a beautiful thing. OK, look at it. We basically what happened in 1994, the Republican Revolution. <laughs> we had true. improved tax rates. We had a booming economy until the dot com bust. I mean, 94 was a good a good time period to be in. You're saying so, you want Clinton president again is what you're saying. I, you know, I mean, we basically have Clinton president. That's been my argument is that Donald Trump is Bill Clinton philosophically, right? I mean, just kind of uh, a good old boy, uh, moderate on most issues, depending on which way the polls are going. Uh, you know, I, I see a lot of similarities there. He's uh, he's no George Bush or Ronald Reagan. 
All right, let's just get that out there. Clinton might have been more laissez-faire than Trump, though. I mean, because he was the one that let, let that dot-com boom uh, happen because he didn't do anything. I mean, he was just like, hey, guys, go at it. <laughs> do whatever. I mean, I think he's he's way more hands-off on the economy than Donald Trump's constantly talking about this company and that company and this industry and this. And I mean, Clinton, I think, was actually even more free market than Donald Trump was in some cases. Well, I think I think Clinton also had the advantage of having what I would consider a popular uh, Republican and active Congress. Right. I mean, when you talk about what yeah. Gingrich came in there and did, I mean, they had a plan. They did what you haven't heard anything out of Paul Ryan, except that he's not running again. Right. I mean, you've got a lame duck Congress in there right now. One hundred percent of focus is on the president when we have. We like, you know, the Republicans have majority <laughs> control of both houses and the presidency and nothing has happened legislatively except for tax reform. Well, it's also because they're terrified to do anything. I mean, that's another big factor is that, you know, when you have when you have a president who is of the opposition party and he does something that you don't like, you can get up on the House floor or Senate floor and, and give a big speech and be like, I am outraged. I mean, they had some poll numbers come out today. Once again, Trump's numbers with Republicans, like 85 percent, some crazy number. The Republicans are terrified to say anything. So if he, unless so if he does something good, they'll, they'll be like, yeah, that's great. But I mean, let's face it. The reason the 90s uh, were successful from, I guess you could argue, uh, from an economic standpoint and some of the most prosperous times that we've ever seen have been when we have a divided government, when we have one president in the White House or one party and then one party in the Congress. Because what happens is that, and this is getting worse and worse every year, is the president is the figurehead of the party and the party lives or dies with the president and congressmen and senators, if it's a, I mean, the same thing happened with Bush. I mean, Bush was expanding government left and right. Bush was spending money. Nobody said anything. Obama gets an office and all of a sudden the deficits are the worst thing ever. And then Trump gets in office and they don't care about him anymore. I mean, we're looking at a trillion dollar deficit 2019. I mean, that's that's insane. No one's saying anything. Why? Because you can't buck the president because he's popular. Now, if his numbers dropped, maybe. And so it's not a good thing when Congress is terrified of telling the president no. And that's not a good thing. I don't care if you agree with the president or not. It's not a good thing when Congress is afraid of the president. And that's where, unfortunately, a lot of Republicans are right now. They weren't well, in 94. Yeah. So let's let's fast forward to the president. I mean, what would happen if Bill Clinton had had Twitter? OK, I'm just going to leave you on that thought. But, <laughs> uh, I think we know it's called Anthony Weiner, man. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of DMs, a lot of, lot of uh, things we probably can't talk about. <laughs> well, I guess this is a podcast. We're not on the radio. We can talk about it. <laughs> he, he, he's going to slide in some DMs for sure. But what, um, you know, let, let me phrase this question to you. You have a president who says whatever's on his mind, and most of his supporters like that. They don't care about the substance of it. They like that he's, he just yeah. tells it how it is. So does any of this really matter? I mean, every day I turn on the TV and I see one of his tweets as the headline. I mean, all day on CNBC, they were talking about his tweet about the president of Tehran, which we don't have time to get into. Um, it, it, him sending out 165 characters – is shaping the media narrative, but what is it actually doing day to day? I mean, I think a lot of people are um, sort of desensitized to it. Yeah. 
No, that's a good point. Uh, Ben Shapiro wrote a piece about this for the National Review maybe last week. And he said, that's kind of where we are, where, but it's not even just his tweets. It's everything that we're in a place where sometimes Trump says something and it matters. Like let's say with trade, for example, his words do end up becoming policies because he can't do a lot of things by executive fiat. But when he says like something about NATO, everyone just kind of ignores it. Uh, If you look at the way foreign countries sort of reacted, they were a little bit outraged, but not really because they know at the end of the day, and this is what Ben Shapiro wrote, that the establishment, you know, the national security establishment is not going to let Trump pull out of NATO. It's just it's not going to happen. And so what is weird is that we're in this place where, yeah, you're right. Uh, You know, people go, oh, I can't believe how upset the media gets about what Trump is saying. But at least that shows that they they believe that what he says could lead to policy. The day they stop getting outraged is the day that Donald Trump pretty much becomes a lame duck because it, it when everyone just goes, oh, that's just Trump being Trump. He's not actually going to do any of those things. And so that I don't I, to me sounds like kind of a bad place if you're Donald Trump and a supporter of Donald Trump. If the press isn't paying attention then what they think is that what Trump is saying doesn't matter at all. And that means that no one's going to take him seriously. You're not going to see any policy come of it. That's not what you'd want if you're a Trump supporter. And so the fact that they are paying attention, uh, at least at the, at the, at the, sometimes they don't, but the fact that the majority of time they do shows that at least they're taking him seriously. The day they stop paying attention is probably a bad sign for Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think that we will just have to see how the the media narrative keeps going and whether or not his tweets end up working out in the long run because, I mean, we still have a very short track record of what he says versus what actually happens. Um, True. So, but but to, to kind of change the station on you here, Tyler, on this week's episode of The O.C., we find that our beloved main character is at odds with her friends. So, guys, last week we talked about how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez – bashed capitalism and said that low unemployment was due to so many people having two jobs. Now, it looks that her moderate compatriots are distancing themselves. In fact, Democrats gathered in Ohio this past week and laid out a big picture strategy of embracing jobs and creating opportunity. Jonathan Cohen, the president of Third Way, which was the organization that uh, organized the event, said, quote, once again, the time has come to mend but not end capitalism for a new era. Tyler, is this a sign that not all Democrats have lost their minds? It is. It's a sign. Well, it's a sign that they're, what's the word I'm looking for? That they're sometimes they're aware, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes they're, they're, they realize, Whoa, we've gone too far. Let's pull things back. And so it, 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 it does show that they're aware that some of the messaging isn't going to work everywhere. And it's a sign that they know where that line is. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing for politics. It's a good thing for the overall country because the minute one party goes completely over the edge, that's not a good thing because it'll means they're unelectable. And like I said, it's it's a good thing when you have divided government and, and, you know, one group can't take absolute control. But my favorite video of Cortez was last, or I guess it was like this weekend, maybe right before the weekend on Friday, she was with Bernie Sanders and she was trying to, to highlight some Democrat candidate. 
And so she's being filmed. She said something along the lines of, hey, elect, you know, whatever the guy's name was, because we're going to turn this district red. <laughs> and everyone was like, what? And then everyone was joking that she meant red like communism, like the communism wave is going gonna, is gonna to take over. But I'll tell you, I, I've never seen someone g- turn so quickly. And this is the problem with 24-7 media and sort of celebrity culture in politics is that she went from the heir apparent to, Oh my gosh, she could save the world and become the next presidential candidate to she's becoming borderline kind of a joke after the, after the disastrous firing line video where she showed, she didn't know a lot about economics. She didn't know anything about Israel and Palestine. She's backtracked a couple of times and the more people dig into her, they find out that a lot of the narrative that she's been selling about herself might not necessarily be true. And then she may, you know, and, and, and what's happening is, is that it might only happen two, three, you know, 5% of the time, but because once a narrative is set, any video that backs that narrative and the Republicans are going to make her seem like an idiot. And so anytime she does something wrong, so she might, if I was her, she might take that as a sign and just kind of back up and just spend the time, you know, talking to people in her district, getting ready for the general, even though she's probably going to win it. But I think she might want to regroup. And just get out of the spotlight for a while, because I think it's only going to hurt her and the Democratic Party because she, she you know, she hit a peak really quick and she seems to be coming down just as quick and she hasn't hit bottom, but it's possible if, if she's not careful. Yeah. You know, I've had I've had that. I've seen this so many times where you have a candidate who won't stay in their lane. Like you don't have to act like, you know, everything about everything. But yet I feel like time and time again, it gets so many candidates in trouble. They're asked about some obscure question, especially, I mean, Congress is a little different story, but you talk to someone who's running for a local office, state house, state Senate, something like that. And they get asked about a federal issue and they go down some rabbit hole when it's, it's not in your wheelhouse. That's not what you're affecting. Stay inside your lane. And, um, and, and I think that it's, it's a lesson to be learned if anyone out there is going to be running for office. (laughs) Look at the cases like uh, Miss OC here and see, um, you know, the dangers of talking about things that you don't understand. Well, she should know about that, though. I mean, the, the stay in your lane for a congressperson would be stay in your state, stay in your district. Because, I mean, when you're in Congress, you're voting on support for Israel. You're voting on, you, you know, what we should do from with regards to economics, the dealing with the unemployment rate. So she should know these things. I mean, the fact that she doesn't is a reason why she should step back and do some basic research and don't rely on talking points or just go on friendly media, uh, do interviews with you know, the Huffington Post and go on MSNBC because they're not going to challenge her. And the thing that's so interesting is that she got tripped up on firing line by Margaret Hoover. Margaret Hoover wasn't even trying to get her and got her anyway. Uh, that's a worrying sign. And listen, she's 28. She, she probably knows a lot more than other 28 year olds. But when you become the face of the party, which she kind of did for like a little while, you need to know about a lot of things. Um, and it's, it's not vitally important that she know about the, you know, Israeli Palestinian conflict. I mean, the reality is, is that it's much more beneficial for her to help the people of district 14 in New York where she's running, but she should know a little bit about those things. And if you don't want to talk about it, then yeah, don't talk about it, but you know, don't also use these, you know, this 
inflammatory rhetoric like Israelis, you know, occupying Palestine, unless you're ready to back up the follow up question. What do you mean by that? So, right. I, I mean, she should know these things, but she can also avoid like I, and this is a weird example. But uh, Al Franken, you know, when he was senator of Minnesota, at least his first term, I didn't see him making a lot of headlines. I mean, he spent he did a lot of media in Minnesota he kind of stayed away from the national spotlight to some extent and really, you know, did his job being the senator of Minnesota. I think he kind of branched away from that maybe in a second term, but you can do that. And so she just wants to do media in New York and talk about New York issues. She can do that. But when you go national, you're going to get those questions and you better be ready for them. Yeah. Let me get your 15 second take uh, to wrap up this particular part and Get, get your opinion on what you think is the future of the Democratic Party. We've talked about this from time to time. Do you think it is people like Miss Ocasio-Cortez or and Sheila Jackson-Lee and Nancy Pelosi and people that are pretty much far left? Uh, or do you think there is still a, a moderate base in there somewhere that, that could kind of swing things back a little bit more towards the center? I think there's a moderate base. Uh, I mean, you can look. I mean, let, let's face it. If you look at, you know, Barack Obama, I mean, I know a lot of people like to say, oh, he's a socialist. This, yeah, I, I get that. But let's not forget that, you know, his big bill, Obamacare, he moderated. I mean, originally, I mean, you talk to a liberal, they want socialized medicine. I mean, they want you know, Medicare for all. That was one of the claims. Obama brought that back because it wasn't palatable. It was not going to pass. They couldn't get the six, even though they had 60 senators, they couldn't get the 60 vote because some de- some senators were not going to get on board with that. The Wisconsin kickback and or the Cornhusker kickback and and, and and the Louisiana Purchase and some of the other ones. So yes, San Francisco, New York, DC, they're gonna have the crazies. Just like Republicans, we got our crazy guys from some parts of, of Texas and Florida and some other places. We got our crazy guys, they got their crazy people. But the majority, I think, um, realize that it, you can't go too far right or too far left. That's always going to be politics. Even with the gerrymandering, um, it's always going to be that way. So I feel like, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely going to there's definitely a moderate base, and that's in the you know the the start of this the the segment you were talking about. You know the fact that they might be realizing that, and they're smart, especially with midterms coming up. Speaking though of crazy people, we got to talk about one of my. Favorite, favorite, just groups of people that exist not only in North Carolina, but all over the country called Sovereign Citizens. And today, WREL reported that members of a sovereign citizen group are facing drug, gambling, and money laundering, money laundering charges after federal, state, and local authorities raided illegal casinos in Robinson County today. More than 26 people of the Tuscarora Nation were arrested following a year-long investigation that found the group operated three casinos, an unlicensed police force, and an indoor and several outdoor marijuana growing operations. The group was also making threats of war against law enforcement. Sovereign citizens are anti-government individuals who assert that even though they're physically physically reside in the U.S., they are separate or quote unquote sovereign. So state and federal laws don't apply to them. Kevin, are sovereign citizens the only political group that makes libertarians seem palatable? 
Oh boy, uh, they're they're one of the few ones. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, I have to note that when you started that segment out, I, I felt like you were almost going into a Seinfeld routine. Like these crazy people. Um, I, I, what can you say? But I, I did want to point out that in this article, there is a picture of a sign that says, "You are now leaving North Carolina and are now entering Tuscarora Nation, sovereign land." I think they. Forgot to spell check. It in fact does not say sovereign land. Uh, completely misspelled. But whoever was on stencil duty that day should be fired. Um, and it cites a treaty of 1794, which I'm sure Alex Jones and Infowars could give us a better explanation of. But, but let me let me turn this back around on you because as I was reading this article, I was I was thinking about things in more of an abstract manner. And what gives legitimacy to other nations, right? I mean, after all, we have a very strange relationship from a governmental perspective with the um, Indian reservations here. You know, we've got the the Eastern Band of the Cherokee here in the state, um, and of course, reservations all across the country, which operate sovereignly, but they do have some, you know, common courtesies and and workings with the, uh, the United States government. So what, what, keeps these people from claiming this piece of land. I mean, should should they be able to collect fight the state of North Carolina for it? Just like we used to in the old days? Like let's rewind to 1794 when they quote their treaty and just let them have a let them have a fight over it. Let them claim the land. Well, but I'm I'm pretty sure if someone gets murdered on an Indian reservation, uh, the police will be involved. I mean, these guys are arguing that like they are a country unto themselves where like, I mean, they can murder someone and they would not be that would and, and that crime would not be applicable to U.S. or North Carolina law. Um, and I mean, there there are clear differences between what the sovereign citizens are doing uh, and these these other parcels of land that we look at with regards to Indian reservations. And yeah, I mean, I I think if they want to go through the proper channels and they want to make some argument, I mean, that's what these you know that's what these this uh, you know this it's a Indian land is all about. I mean, it's not like one day they just said this. I mean, it, there, there's a process to go through and you get a casino. That's a process that you have to go through. And so if they want to do that, yeah, I mean, go for it. Tuscarorians. I don't know if that's what they're called or not, but they just like set up like a sign and put a fence up and they're like, we're sovereign land. <laughs> like that's, I mean, if, and the thing is, if that's all it took, why wouldn't we all do that? I mean, I'll just, dec- I'll just declare my house right now, sovereign land. And now I can do whatever I want. I'm not going to pay income tax. I'm not going to. I mean, the thing is, is that it, it pretty much would defeat the purpose of, of having a country if anyone at any time could just remove themselves from the country by claiming that they weren't part oh, of it I, anymore. I mean, yeah, it just, I agree. I think that they should have to earn it. That's why I said, you know, we come up with a lot of great television programming here. I mean, so far we've got a reality show <laughs> following around Ocasio-Cortez, the OC, you know, 2018. We've got um, the like men's NBA versus the WNBA and just have like a, a straight up one-on-one tournament to see who wins. Um, and now I think that we have some sort of reality show about if the Tuscarora Nation wants to declare independence, they need to, to write a declaration, send it to the government and fight it out. Just like we did. <laughs> I can just, I can just imagine how long that battle would last. Like they're like, we're fighting, you know. I mean, the thing is, we really shouldn't joke about it because last year I remember I watched a bunch of 
documentaries on like Ruby Ridge and Waco and Oklahoma. I mean, that's all that craziness got started where these idiots that were like, oh, the United States government is. And here's, you know, what's so funny is that all the crazy people who, you know, the Ruby Ridge and, um, you know, Waco and all that stuff, all like these like guys that were so mad about centralized government. Those are Trump supporters today. And Donald Trump is like the biggest supporter of centralized government of, of that I've seen from a Republican in quite some time. And so it's just like bizarre how it, it was never centralized government. They just didn't like Clinton at the time. They didn't like Democrats at the time. But I mean, a lot of the people who, you know, these people that don't like centralized, that didn't like um, centralized government at the time are now big Trump supporters. <laughs> And Trump loves centralized government. So it's yeah, par for the course at this point. But I, I just thought that was interesting um, um, reality. Yeah, I, just no, had. I, I think you're exactly right. And uh, the, the big government thing is something that I have um, – you know, a lot of reservations and questions about when we talk about the direction overall of elected Republicans, I won't even say the party, but people in office, um, because we haven't really talked about it here yet. But our listeners should be aware that there are going to be six constitutional amendments uh, to the North Carolina Constitution on the ballot this November. They include a 7% income tax cap, hunting and fishing rights, Marcy's Law, voter ID, and uh, judicial vacancy rules, as well as the establishment of a bipartisan state board of ethics and elections. Now, some critics are opposed to all of them simply because they were sponsored by the evil Republicans in Raleigh. Now, there are others who are concerned that due to the vagueness of the proposals, that uh, they're not really sure what they are supporting or going against. The News and Observer is also reporting that a session may be called uh, to write the descriptions of the ballot provisions coming up for November. So they're having to bring everyone back to Raleigh for another session. So, Tyler, here's my question. Are these amendments a vague political game by big government Republicans or are they purely an effort to combat activist courts? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think that I, I don't understand six of them. Uh, like, for example, like the, the hunting and fishing one I never really got where it's like we're just going to, you know, make sure that hunting and fishing is a part of North Carolina. And so to me, it's not necessarily about big government because a lot of the amendments um, are about, you know, like lowering the, you know, putting a cap on the income tax and, and making sure that people can always hunt and fish. I just think that the Republicans are worried that they're going to lose their supermajority. And then if there was like just an absolute earthquake, they might lose their majority. And then they'd be worried that the Democrats would raise taxes and and uh, would you know, completely destroy voter ID. And so this is their attempt to keep that from happening. And is it big government? I don't think it is. I mean, they're going through the process. It's not like they created a new branch of government like the voter ID uh Department, Department of Voter ID, and then and then that that and and they created that whole department, and they're employing people, and it's all about promoting voter ID. They're they're, they're giving it to the people. They're saying, hey, let everyone decide. So I like that aspect. I, I I like that more than them. Like like I said, just creating a government program or creating a branch of the government or whatever it is. So I like that. I like that they're just giving it to the people and letting them decide. But I think it also is a little sign of weakness that they are concerned that they're going to. To, to lose their supermajority, if not majority, 
And so they want to sort of set everything in stone that they've done. And as a Republican, I mean, I like that's I kind of like it. But at the same time, I don't think it's necessary. But I get why they're doing it. But I think six was a little much. I, I have to completely agree with you. And I did want to do a quick update that since um, since I first brought this story up uh, a little bit earlier this afternoon, when I was putting this together that they actually have officially declared yeah. uh, session for tomorrow. So they're going to be coming back to write these uh, snippets explaining what will be done and to give people a little bit more of an explanation, because I have a feeling that most media outlets are not going to give you the full story. The law or the snippets are supposed to be written by the secretary of state, the uh, attorney general, and then um, a member from the uh, legislative services at the General Assembly, uh, Paul Coble, who's officially kind of like the the COO, if you will, of the legislature, which is a two-one Democrat-controlled body. So apparently, what has happened is this two-to-one body is trying to slant the verbiage so that people will vote against it, and they act like this is some overreach by Republicans having to write the snippet when. Once again, you've got Democrats controlling what the snippet is going to be. So what are we going to do about this back and forth tower? Because I really feel like it's it's come to a point there is no compromise. It's just either Republicans have to do it to do it a certain way or the Democrats are going to do it a certain way and there's no common ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that, that one I have no idea about. I was like, well, they should <laughs> they should put on the November ballot – uh, the wording, and then we get to choose what the wording is, and then the next November we'll actually vote on the actual <laughs> <laughs> decision. I don't know. I have no idea what you do because you're right. I, and the thing is, is that I, I get their concern about the negativity, but I mean, what exactly were they going to write that the Republicans were concerned about? Like, oh, do you want to vote for this stupid voter ID that's going to cost a lot of money and not actually stop? I mean, like, what did they think that they were going to write that was going to cause a problem? Uh, I get that they could throw some negative language in there and I get that they're concerned about it. And I think what the, what the Republicans should do is have sort of an oversight capacity, which I think is what they're concerned that maybe they wouldn't have. But I just don't think there's too much that they could do, you know, with the, the, the space that they have on the ballot. I mean, it's not like they can write a paragraph about how much, whatever it is they're voting on sucks. So it's going to be pretty basic and, yeah, I mean, I guess it's something to be concerned about. I mean, this, but this is just what – this is the problem that we also have with redistricting is that there's no way to do something where you're not going to have a political – you're not going to have political appointees. I mean, so if, if you're redistricting, do you elect the people? Are they appointed? Well, who appoints them? And so – and then if you do, say, try and make it completely bipartisan and have four to four, which is what the Republicans tried to do right on the uh, – uh, with regards to the the the, the board of elections, the board and of elections, right? And so it's you're you're never gonna. This is like the 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 age old problem with politics is that politics is political, and it's always gonna be there. And I mean, first of all, who even knew that we had this committee that had like a job was to like write constitutional amendments on the ballot? Like, I didn't even know like that even exists. Uh, and so, but I mean, did they write the did they write the last one for the gay marriage amendment? I have, I have no idea. Because really, I, mean, I don't remember I mean, anyone I, complaining about that. And so, you know, they seem to do a pretty good job. And that was probably all Democrat, to be honest, because Roy Cooper was attorney general. Secretary of State was the same. Um, so I don't remember them complaining about that. So I'm wondering why now maybe Josh Stein 
is more political, but I don't think so. I mean, Roy Cooper was pretty political. So I don't know. I don't know why that was okay last time. And that was far more controversial than like an income tax amendment. So I don't know. It just, it's, it's every issue now. I don't know how you solve it. Well, here's what I want to see happen, Tyler. This, I, I have another idea. I think you need to sit down. Maybe we can work together and let's come up with the top rejected taglines <laughs> for the amendments. <laughs> I feel like that would be a great kind of like David Letterman yes, sketch. Top, top, you know? 10, Just, top 10 ways not to word the constitutional tax cap amendment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, on a more serious note, when you brought up Amendment 1 on, on gay marriage, it really made me wonder, do these constitutional amendments matter in the end? Like it, no. if one <laughs> court case can completely overturn a majority amendment to a state constitution, do, does it matter? Well – this one would uh, because the income tax, for example, that is what we set. So that will never be overturned. I mean, I, I guess you don't want to say never, but I just don't see the Supreme Court one day saying no state is allowed to lower their court because the problem is, is that some states have zero, no income tax. So that is completely under our purview. So no, not that. But yeah, I mean, let's face it, uh, the, the voter ID. Some states have voter ID, others don't. Same thing with early voting. Some states do, some states don't. We have no guidance from the federal government, and I think that's the way it should be, but that used to be the way with marriage. And could one day the Supreme Court say voter ID is unconstitutional, potentially, and that would then completely negate the the constitutional amendment. So you're right on issues like that. I mean, if the Supreme Court rules law of the land – so it, it will all be for naught. But I think the tax amendment and, you know, hunting and fishing and things like that, that we have obvious control over. Yes, that matters. But something that the state, that the federal government could overrule. Yeah. It, one day we could say, well, the voter ID. So gone. Gone. Absolutely gone. Well, before we are gone, I actually did want to get your opinion on something, Tyler, because – um, yesterday was a pretty big day in golf. It was. and Almost was even better. <laughs> it was almost even better. I'll tell you what, when I was um, – I actually wasn't keeping up with the Open all weekend. Had a few different things going on and I said yesterday morning, oh, I said, oh, the time difference. I need to tune in now and see what's going on. And um, I, that was actually at the point – I think it was on the 9th or 10th and Tiger was leading seven yeah. under top of the leaderboard and i was like holy cow and then i think it was on 10 he had an incredible putt uh to save par i mean it was like a 30 footer and then things downgraded a little bit he ended up uh four under so what do you think is is tiger finally back i I wouldn't say he's back uh at least not the tiger that 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 we all remember from the the early 2000s the late 90s uh because it was funny. You're right. He was leading it. I think he came into, I think it was like 12 or 13 and he got lucky, he got a lucky break and he just made that, you know, amazing save on the last hole. He actually hit him a fairway bunker that looked like textbook tiger. And he goes to the next hole and I'm feeling I'm like, this is great. And he hits this flop shot that was almost perfect, but it didn't go perfect. And so it almost rolled back in the bunker. It didn't, he ended up making a double, he then bogeys the next hole, and all of a sudden he's out of the tournament. The Tiger of of yesteryear would never – he would have nailed that flop shot, and we would be talking about today how amazing that was, and that's why he won the British Open. So he's not back uh, because I still think he, you know, he doubled that hole. He probably shouldn't have. 
Uh, and then I think he bogeyed the next hole. He was so mentally kind of messed up from that. So he's not mentally back physically, though. His back is strong. He hit the ball. He was number one in, in driving accuracy, which has been a problem for his since he got back. Um, his putting is still a little shaky, but I think it's still a mental issue is that he needs to become that tiger that when he gets on the leaderboard, the rest of the field just folds. And that could happen, but he wasn't mentally there. And so he still isn't there. He's got to get a win. He has not closed on a Sunday yet. He's never really been very good at it. He's always been leading going into Sunday. He's never been a come from behind kind of guy, but he's got to get a W. And once he does, I think it'll kind of energize him and make him, you know, kind of get that, that, that monkey off his back. And then he's going to be able to then go into it and possibly win a major. And, but he's close. He is very, I mean, he was top 10. I mean, a year ago, we didn't think he was ever going to play golf again. And now he's finishing top 10 at the British Open. And he had a great, uh, pretty good US Open or a pretty good uh, Masters. And so you never know. You never know a Tiger. But I think he's got probably five years left. Because I think Nicholas won his last tournament when he was 46. Tiger, I think, is in better shape. So I think Tiger could maybe go 47, 48. But he's got to get a W somewhere. Yeah, I, I just think it was exciting to watch. And I know I'm not the only one. I don't know if you've seen these stats, Tyler, but I thought these were, were so much worth mentioning. Any tournament that he has played in this year has a 55% higher <laughs> viewership yeah. than tournaments he's not in. And the British Open was up 38% year over year. It was the most streamed British Open since 2000 when he won the uh, the Grand yeah. Slam. Well, I, I mean, so, if... if- you want to understand the cultural impact of Tiger Woods, go back to the, go back and watch any movie in the late nineties and early two thousands and Tiger Woods, name will get mentioned. And that was just something that, you know, a regular movie, how many times golf is mentioned in a movie? How many times Tiger Woods is mentioned in a movie? I mean, the players today even admit, and Phil Mickelson's even admitted this now that the reason that they have the, as much money as they do is all, because of what Tiger Woods did to the game of golf. And so people still, people like me, I mean, that's when I first started playing. And much as I love golf, golf is that much more fun when Tiger's playing. And and everyone else feels that way because he's such a cultural phenomenon. And it's always going to be like that. And so when he plays, yeah, people watch. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, people want to see that. There's also a nostalgia factor. People want to, you know, go back to, you know, the, the heyday when he was playing well. And so there's a lot, there's a lot, but it, it, it all equals money and ratings for golf. So, and, and as a golfer, I support it. <laughs> Officially, an official endorsement of Tiger That's Woods right. by Tom Crawley. Right. You heard it here first on Tavern Voices. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>